My guest today is Professor Susan Albers, who is Professor of Biology and Evolutionary Anthropology and the Chair of the Evolutionary Anthropology Department at Duke University. She studies the behavior, ecology, physiology, and genetics of wild populations of large mammals. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your papers from 2019, Intergenerational Effects of Early Adversity on Survival in Wild Baboons. Uh, I found this really fascinating. Um, uh, so I know nothing about it, but thinking about the intergenerational effects is really, um, really amazing. So you say here, early life adversity can affect an individual's health, survival, and fertility for many years after the adverse experience. Whether early life adversity also imposes intergenerational effects on the exposed individual's offspring is not well understood. So, so what? What's the mechanism here? How, how does it have intergenerational effect? Um, so we're, we're talking about baboons here, but I would imagine it's extensible to other mammals too, I would think, right? Well, and in fact, the question is really motivated by research on humans in which we know that early adverse circumstances are associated with poor health and with shortened lifespan. And in fact, the effects in humans are quite marked. They're very strong effects. Um, and in non-human animals, for many years, we've known that early adversity can affect, that early adverse circumstances can affect fertility. But I think that our study was the first to show that it can affect longevity as well. And um, the, the question of how early life adversity gets under the skin, not only to affect the individual's own life trajectory, but that of its offspring is a really complex one. The big picture answer is we don't know yet. Um, there are a number of mechanisms that are possible. One of the things that we think is very likely in the case of these intergenerational effects is that um, it's a fairly simple, uh, what you might call, what, what ecologists and evolutionary biologists call a parental effect It's a or a maternal effect in that the body condition of the mother, the physical condition of the mother, that her physiology, her behavior, um, have, have, are shaped by her early life environment. And it's that uh, it, maternal environment, it's her behavior, physiology, that affect her offspring's development. Um, that's not the only possibility. It could be that there is some sort of epigenetic programming that has that is is set in motion by the mother's early life adversity but a more parsimonious and simpler explanation is just a a, a direct maternal effect and we think that that's what's going on in the baboons um, it doesn't really answer the question of how maternal early adversity gets under the skin and we're working on that one possibility is that if a female has adverse early environments then she's just not as good a mother. That's an entirely possible thing. To the extent that we've looked at it so far, we're in the early stages of examining that. We don't find a lot of evidence for that. Um, it, it, it's not, the, there's no obvious way in which females with more early adversity are suckling their offspring less or carrying their offspring less. But what we are seeing, and this is work led by my, P, my former PhD student, Matthew Zippel, who's now a postdoc at Cornell University, 
um, what we do see is that uh, females with more early life adversity, once they grow up and become adults and have their own offspring, they have an inclination, they have a tendency to spend more time with adult males, which is really interesting. What we don't know is whether that effect is bad for their kids, hence potentially one of the mechanisms that causes poor offspring survival, or whether it's actually something that mitigates the other negative effects the mother experienced from early adversity, whether it actually helps reduce the effect of maternal early adversity on offspring survival. So that's what we're really curious about. Yeah. So in some sense, it's sort of a resource allocation problem here. Uh, mm-hmm. As you mentioned, if you have adversity, perhaps you have less time and how you allocate that time uh, is you know, becoming more constrained. Yeah. Uh, and this idea that um, the females tend to spend more time with their partners is also sort of a resource allocation issue. A um, lot of things are going through my mind, <laughs> so, so I just want to take a quick detour uh, on the human side. I mean, we have all, always known that initial conditions matter a lot uh, mm-hmm. for, for development. Mm-hmm. Um, this has implications for healthcare. It has implications for how do we really think about, um, you know, sort of early um, interventions in families that are resource constrained, uh, adversity could come in a lot of different um, different flavors, I would think. And so have you thought about that? I mean, do you, do you see some sort of a policy implications uh, on the human side? Yeah, in fact, that's, that, that's a really important question. And it's one of the things we were, that, that really motivated some of this research because in the human literature, the, the, the presence of early life adversity not only predicts later life health and survival, it also predicts later life health habits. Individuals who had more early life adversity tend also to smoke more. They tend to um, exercise less. Uh, You know, there's a whole, and and they often have poor socioeconomic status, which means access to less healthcare. Um, And so in the human literature, it seems clear that a lot of the the effect of early adversity is sort of mediated by these adult health habits and and health uh, or healthcare environments, um, but in the baboon, but but probably not all of it. And in the baboons, we found an effect nearly as strong as the effect of early life adversity in humans. And there's no health habits in the baboons. Everybody's doing <laughs> right. the same thing. Nobody's smoking. Right. You know, there's no there's no socioeconomic variation, um, and so that suggests that the early life adversity itself is where you need to intervene. Um, and so we do think that that's a, a sort of translational outcome of some of the work that we do. Um, th- did that answer the question? Yeah, it does. It does. So in some sense, having some sort of a special status for mothers has huge societal value, I would think. Yeah. Uh, just to just to make clear for the audience, uh, it is quite profound. You say here, we find that juveniles whose mothers experience early life adversity exhibit high mortality before age four, independent of the juveniles on experience of early adversity. So yeah. it, it, this is this is a, a shock 
that happened before, yeah. <laughs> before the, the kid is born, right? It's what they come to the table with. Yeah. Because it be, just because of who their mothers are. Actually, can, can we go back to the policy implication just briefly? Because yeah. there was another piece of that thought that I wanted to complete. So another question that I think is quite pressing in the human literature that's difficult to answer in the human literature, just because we're so long-lived and we don't really yet have that much data on individuals from birth to death in large numbers with really fine-grained data on every stage of their life. There, there are some, and those data sets are growing. But um, is so a big question in the human literature is to what extent are the effects of early life and the known effects of adulthood independent, or uh, do the to what extent do the effects of adulthood simply mediate the effects of early life? Right. So, for instance, another thing we know about humans is that stronger social bonds are associated with higher survival. Um, and it's possible that those stronger social bonds are simply reflecting the effects of early life adversity so that the predominant force in an individual's life is early life adversity. And if you don't intervene in early life, you've lost your chance. But another possibility is that adult environments have their own independent effects and maybe even have the possibility of moderating or mitigating the effects of early life adversity. And that's another question that we've tackled in our study population. And I'll say much to my surprise, we found that both early life and adult social environments have independent effects on survival. And in fact, there is the potential for adult social environments to moderate the effects of early life adversity. So while we do need to intervene in early life, it suggests that interventions in adulthood are not without consequence, and there's potential there too. So uh, there could be interventions at different points in time, or, or, or perhaps all through one's life. Yeah. So if you if you sort of think about this as a diagnosis uh, early on, and then it's sort of a chronic condition for that individual yeah. that you can possibly treat in, in mm -hmm. some way, right? So, so you have another paper here that is uh, very well connected to the, what you're talking about here. So 2021, social bonds, social status, and survival in wild baboons, a tale of two sexes. Um, before we get into the, the, the variations in sexes, you say people who are more socially integrated or have high socioeconomic status live longer. And we can clearly see that in the data, uh, even in people. And uh, recent studies in non-human primates, you say, show striking convergence with this human pattern. Um, and so, so this is what you were talking about, right? So if uh, people are well-adjusted, they have a lot of social bonds, and there's this question of social status, um, which is interesting. How, how, do you, how do you define social status here? So I'm going to talk about the human literature, and then I'm going to talk about how we think about it in baboons. Um, because this is one of the areas where baboons appear to be quite different from humans, very interestingly. So in humans, you can measure social status as um, income, as grade of work, or as educational level. And with each of those types of definition, you get this profound, pervasive effect of social status on survival, on, on longevity. Um, social scientists use the phrase fundamental cause of 
inequalities in health and survival, to, to refer to social status. It, it's really a big effect, and it's quite consistent in human in the human populations where it's been studied uh, that higher status individuals have longer lives. In the baboons, what's very interesting, and in non-human primates in general, uh, the the effect is less consistent for social status than it is for social bonds, from what we know now. And in Ambicelli, in, the, in my study population of baboons, what we see is that social status, independent of social bonds, is not affecting female survival. It does affect male survival, but the effect is weaker than it is in humans, and it's in the opposite direction which is really intriguing. Uh, High-ranking males, males who maintain high rank for their age throughout their life, tend to live shorter lives than males who are lower ranking for their age. And I say for their age because in baboons, um, rank is strongly age-correlated. Males reach their highest rank when they're young and in their prime, between 9 and 11, and then they fall in rank throughout their lives. In Primates, social status, rank, is measured basically by fighting ability. And that's different than in humans. In humans, social status is multidimensional and may involve income, may sometimes involve uh, competitive abilities measured directly, but usually not fighting ability. Um, so, so there's a difference in how, in how they're defined, and there's a difference in their outcome for health and survival. We think, I think of male baboons as sort of living a, a you know, pursuing a live fast, die young strategy, uh, whereas male humans appear not to do that, right? They're playing a longer game <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and social status often increases with age in humans. Yeah, uh, so without knowing much about it, uh, Susan, my intuition is that, so in the case of baboons, you see, um, uh, high rank, high status uh, males living uh, shorter lives. So I wonder if it is related to stress. I mean, when you are top of the ladder, sometimes, you know, <laughs> you have more stress. So I wonder if there's some sort of an inverted U relationship, you know, sort of things in the middle appear yeah. to be stress yeah. optimal. Yeah, that was a that was a nice uh, question because it allows me to segue to a couple of other bodies of research that we're pursuing. So my colleague Jenny Tung and her laboratory, her PhD student Jordan Jordan Anderson, was one of the leaders of this work, um, are looking at epigenetic aging, and trying to understand how some individuals age faster than others based on their epigenetic signatures, based on their patterns of gene expression, if you will. Um, there's a well-known epigenetic clock in humans, patterns of gene expression, patterns of, of um, marks on the DNA that affect gene expression, change with age. Um, and some individuals seem to age relatively. So, so there's, a, there's a clock, uh, mm-hmm. an, it's called an epigenetic clock that you can use to sort of, if you just get someone's blood sample and, and uh, look at their patterns of, of gene expression or really marks on the DNA, DNA methylation, for those of your listeners who know what that is, um, you can you can estimate their age. But there's variance around that. Some individuals age are old for their age. Some are young for their age on this epigenetic clock. 
And what Jordan and Jenny found in the Ambicelli baboons is that high-ranking males have faster epigenetic aging than low-ranking males. So that's exactly the point you raised, uh, Gil. And we also know that the, the highest-ranking male in the group is typically showing um, he's, 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 uh, he's secreting a lot of glucocorticoid hormones, which are sometimes mm -hmm. called a stress hormone. Uh, that, that's a bad shorthand name for them. Basically, yeah. what, they, what they do is they prepare the body for a challenge. And if you're secreting a lot of glucocorticoids, it means you're always ready for a challenge, whether it's an energetic challenge or a psychosocial challenge. Um, high-ranking males ha have high glucocorticoids. So there's other bits of evidence to suggest that what male baboons are doing is live fast, die young, pay a cost of rank in the short term, but, um, but benefit from it by getting lots of access to, to reproductive opportunities. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, I wonder on the human side, um, you know, uh, there's some indication that the corporate uh, pathways, let's call it, <laughs> yeah. uh, of the high status humans uh, tend to actually reduce lifespan mm -hmm. uh, and again related to stress. So so you have, uh, so corticoid, I don't know much about it, Susan. so it is a marker, isn't it? So you say here we document the powerful link between GCs, which is uh, glucocorticoid and survival. Uh, females are relatively high current GCs uh, or high lifelong tubulative GCs face an elevated risk of death. Um, lifelong cumulative GCs. So these are things that don't uh, don't get um, taken out of the system after it's created. It is sort of activates oh. over time. Yeah, that that's a really good uh, question. It, so you're referring to our 2021 paper led 2021 by my paper, yeah. former yeah. postdoc Fernando Campos. So. So it's not that the, it's not that what, what's cumulative, what we're referring to is how, how is sort of the amount of exposure your body has had to the glucocorticoids you're secreting, right? right. So if you're, if you're hypothalamic, hypothalamic pituitary axis, uh, adrenal axis is sort of constantly stimulated to secrete glucocorticoids, then you're going to have, by the time you reach age 10 years old, you're going to have, have been exposed to a good deal more glucocorticoid secretion than if your HPA axis is stimulated to produce less. And that's what we're measuring when we say cumulative exposure. And indeed, we did find that for females, we don't have this data for males. It, it's, it's more difficult to get for male baboons because they leave their, the group they were born into around the time they reach adulthood, and then they can move between groups. So it's very easy for them to leave our study population, um, whereas females pretty much remain in our study population throughout their lives. Um, and and indeed we and and this is the, this hypothesis has been circulating in the human literature for some time that um, that part of how uh, adverse circumstances get under the skin is because they trigger your HPA axis to just secrete too many glucocorticoids. Um, that's been really difficult to test in humans because you can't just keep select co collecting. Um, glucocorticoid samples for humans for, for decades and see what happens to them. Those studies typically will collect two or three 
or maybe four samples of saliva for cortisol analysis over about a decade towards the end of a person, you know, when a person is somewhat older. Mm. And our guess is that that's pretty noisy. The data we had come from um, fecal samples. So every time a baboon defecates, we collect it and we then can get a number of things out of that fecal sample, including steroid hormone concentrations. Glucocorticoids are a steroid hormone. And so we can measure for individual females over the course. For some females, we have 15 years of fecal samples that gives us a very good estimate of it's noisy if you've just got one or two samples uh, per individual. But we had many. We had about 14,500 samples for about 200 females over the courses of their lives. And that's, that's how we were able to ask that question that's been very difficult to ask in humans. Yeah, and it makes a lot of intuitive sense, right? It's a bit like radiation. So it's yeah. essentially sort of the area under the curve of exposure. Uh, yeah. and, and what you're finding here is that that total exposure has some correlation to lifespan. Yeah. Uh, which makes which makes a lot of sense. Uh, and as you say, it's very difficult to do in, in humans. Uh, I want to go into another topic. So in 2021, you have a paper, Better Baboon Breakups, Collective uh -huh. Decision Theory of Complex Social Network uh, Fissions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you say here, many social groups are made up of complex social networks in which each individual associates with a distinct subset of his group mates. If social groups be become uh, larger over time, competition often leads to a permanent group fission. Um, it's a bit like for humans, we have this thing called Dunbar number, right? So when we took off uh, 200,000 years ago, you know, clan sizes maybe um, a, 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 maybe a dozen, a few dozens, and we quickly found out that when we hit 150, things really, <laughs> things really break down. And so this is happening here also in the case of baboons, right? Yeah. Well, so I think you're asking about the process of fission. Yeah. Yeah. When a group fissions. Yeah. I mean, it, it's quite interesting. Um, the it, it does look as though um, and, and honestly, it's a time constraint. The baboons have a time budget, right? They have to work a certain number of hours a day just to survive. And that mm. work involves foraging, getting enough calories and getting water into your body so that you can keep going and you can reproduce. Um, and and the, the discretionary time they have, they have to decide how to allocate it between resting and socializing. And social life is very important for baboons as for most primates and, and all social mammals. Um, and, and figuring out, you know, the, the, there's, there's an allocation problem. And it looks to us from our data as though there is a sort of, you know, as group size increases, you increase the number of connections you have, but there's an asymptote, right? You can't just keep going up and up and up. Um, the question of what drives a fission. So, so one of the interesting things about that paper, which was led by a PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill, Brian Lurch, a uh, very nice piece of work that he led, and we're, we're happy that he collaborated with us on that. Um, his question was, um, what does the process look like? But you're also asking what drives the decision to, to fission at all. And it is almost certainly a combination of 
um, intra-group competition for resources mm. and uh, an inability to keep a cohesive social network, group-wide social network, as groups get larger and larger. We think of baboon groups. So humans, human social groups have this very interesting property where they're permeable to outside mem to outside individuals. And in fact, the boundaries of a human social group are not only quite permeable, except when they're not, except when people decide there's a hard boundary and we're going to go to war to, to protect that boundary. The, the, in general, they're, they're permeable and they, they can sort of um, move farther or closer to an individual depending on their social context. Um, and 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 to what extent they feel threatened versus versus the extent to which they need allies. Baboon groups are different. The 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 boundaries of a baboon group are pretty well defined, and they're not really that permeable. They're not that permeable to females. They're they're permeable to males in in the in the dispersal context. But mostly, a baboon group is a baboon group is a baboon group, I and mean, everybody knows who's in it. But a baboon group of any given size has two competition problems. It's got a it's got a problem of competition within the group, and then it's got a competition it's got a problem of competition with other groups. So it's got a within group competition problem and a between group competition problem. Small groups are pretty privileged when it comes to within group competition because there's not that many individuals you're competing with. Um, but they're disadvantaged when it comes to between group competition because they're small and they can't necessarily go to a waterhole anytime they want if there's a bigger group using that waterhole. Big groups are privileged when it comes to between group competition, but the within group tension, the within group competition is probably what eventually drives it apart and causes a fission. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, you can see small companies are much more effective in innovation. They work together a lot better, but competing with the Fortune 100 <laughs> is difficult yeah. for them, right? Yeah. It's sort of a similar similar issue uh, here, Absolutely. right? So, so it's an optimization problem. Exactly. And, and so as the groups grow, so do we have some sort of a algorithm? You talk about here democracy, community, and so on, fission algorithms, you say. Yeah. So, so have you figured out how they do this? How they reach this point at which they they sort of split? <laughs> yeah, well, that was exactly Brian's question. So he wasn't so interested in what is causing them to fission. Um, other people have worked on that problem of you know this that you identified as something that affects every ecosystem, whether it's the corporate ecosystem or a primate ecosystem or um, honestly anyone, which is the the anyone that's organized that's subdivided where where individuals are subdivided into groups. There's a within group versus a between group interaction and competition problem. But Brian was interested in the question of what does the process look like? And um, he's the one who developed the, um, the, the democratic algorithm, the democracy algorithm, the community algorithm, uh, and the despotic algorithm. And he compared, in each case, he had sort of two sets of questions. One was, among these theoretical algorithms, not paying attention to the baboon behavior, which one performs best in terms of creating a fission of two relatively equal sized groups uh, without breaking too many bonds? 
And then he asked the question, the, the next question, um, which was, well, what do the baboons look like? What do their outcomes look like? And what he found is that is that the baboons, in terms of the outcome of the fission, looks very much like a democratic algorithm, but they're not nearly as efficient as a democrat as a, as as his computational process that he came up with, right? It, which is a simple set of rules that says. You know, if you're the first individual, do this. If you're the second individual, do this. If you're the third individual, do that. And that's almost certainly reflecting the fact, well, two things. One is that the baboons are optimizing in multiple dimensions. They're not just optimizing one thing, which is what we looked at in the algorithms, the strongest social bonds. They're optimizing other things. Um, like, for instance, their social rank in the resulting group. Is, is a possibility for what they might be trying to optimize. But the other thing is they have quite imperfect communication. They're quite constrained in, in trying, and they're all simultaneously trying to optimize at the same time. And everything you do, your outcome is dependent on what other individuals do. So you're probably pretty vulnerable to mistakes. And that means that, you know, you may make an initial decision thinking you're going to have this outcome, but then Another individual on whom your your outcome depends makes another decision, and then you have to reassess, and that and that's going to create an inefficient process. It's it's much more efficient to talk it through. Mm -hmm. I remember you saying somewhere here, uh, Susan, that there's temporary fissions and permanent fissions. Yeah. If if I understand it correctly, so uh, if a fission happens and it's temporary, that doesn't mean that they actually come back together at some point. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, let me let me just um, digress slightly here and, and explain that among animal societies, including human societies, um, there are sort of two ways to think about social groups. One is in the context of what we call a fission fusion society, where um, fissions and fusions are happening constantly. And this t humans are are a fission-fusion society. The social group that you're in right now is different than the social group that, be, that you'll be in later tonight. Tomorrow you'll be in a different one, and so on. That's a fission-fusion society. Um, there are other fission-fusion societies. African elephants are fission-fusion. Um, spotted hyenas are somewhat fission-fusion. Chimpanzees are somewhat fission-fusion, although they also have a pretty hard community boundary. All the fissioning and fusing in a chimpanzee group occurs in the context of a hard community boundary and then there's fissioning and fusioning within that but but um, but the other type the non-fission fusion type of society is a is a is a permanent social group society and that's what baboons live in they live in a permanent social group society and and so when a permanent social group goes through a fission that is a process rather than an event and the process will often involve uh, sort of temporary subgrouping where the, 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 the animals might split into two groups or even three groups for a few hours or even a day or two and then come back together and reassort. And then they might fission again in a week or two and then come back together and reassort and fission again. And what we've seen in the fissions that we've seen in Ambicelli is that over time, the the um, the composition 
of those subgroups in terms of which individuals join which subgroup becomes more and more predictable and more and more stable. And at some point, they're, they're spending more time apart than they are together. And that's when we call that fission permanent. So it's a process that ultimately gets them there. In, a, in an ironic way, Susan, uh, it seems like we can't really run these experiments in humans anymore because, you know, we have Facebook, we have Internet, <laughs> all those things are interfering uh, mm. with our, you know, sort of how we used to live. Mm. Uh, and so we have to look at non-human primates to really understand what the heck is going on. <laughs> you know, once we give a, perhaps we can give one group of baboons a Facebook and see if, if they're... <laughs> yeah. Right, if everything changes for them. Well, uh, actually, I think that a bigger change than social media, which has been huge in how humans interact, um, is um, <coughs> was the sort of rise of the state, right? It, it originally, <coughs> it's thought that humans lived in small bands. And and at some point, they aggregated when, when people settled and figured out that they could uh, farm farm food, raise crops and, and, and herd animals, uh, people started to settle. And then you got larger aggregations than you had ever seen over the course of human history. And, and government structures started to form. And, and I think that was probably the biggest shift in thinking about how humans probably functioned. Um, I think there was probably there was certainly conflict before then, intergroup conflict before then, but um, but the more settled and larger a human group is, the more likely it's going to be in conflict with another group, I think. So, yeah, but yeah, really social media does, everything's on the table. It's all, we're, in, we're reinventing things on a daily basis. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, you know, I was thinking, I mean, so we can see there is a, a size issue. So we can look at Scandinavian countries, we can look at New Zealand, we can look at countries as less than 10 million people. They behave certain way. And then we can look at these large systems, uh, the US, India, China, they, they, they are totally different. <laughs> you know, yeah. two, a lot of conflicts going on. In fact, one could argue these countries are not a single country, right. but perhaps multiple countries, right? So. Right. There is a sort of an optimization question they do, I think. Well, and it's interesting because it that connects back to something we were talking about earlier, which is this the sort of great permeability of human social groups. And I think that one of the things that different I'm not a I should say I'm talking about human behavior here as if I know anything about it. I'm an animal behavior person, but of course I do have thoughts about human behavior, which I'm gonna share now. <laughs> um, I hope that's okay. So you know, I think that one of the really fascinating things about what differentiates one country from another in terms of its internal conflict has to do with the extent to which people in that country consider themselves all members of the same in-group, as opposed to perceiving themselves as a heterogeneous mix of people with lots of different interests and lots of different affinities. Um, and, you know, to some extent, honestly, that's all artificial because ultimately we're all human and we have pretty similar interests. And, uh, and, and but, but we do very passionately identify individuals with whom we decide we share interests and who we decide we want to defend 
we can we can base those decisions on all sorts of things, none of which are terribly rational because they're all sort of a, a cultural overlay. But but I think it's that it, it it's it's an evolutionary holdover of humans that that um, of, of our of our past that we're able to both uh, allow almost anybody we want into our in group, but also force barriers that say, no, you arbitrarily are a member of the out group, and therefore I'm going to wage war on you. Sometimes, of course, those conflicts are over resources that are defined by by, by state boundaries. But within societies, you know, they, they tend to be more arbitrary uh, and, and, yeah. Yeah. So larger systems have more, more flexibility uh, the design space is a lot bigger. You have a lot, lot more optionality in the sense that you know you can pretty much go in a lot of different directions. In a small system, you're sort of constrained from mm -hmm. that, and so mm -hmm. that that also sort of feeds into it. I want to go back to uh, the uh, the primate studies that you have. So this one from 2021, uh, maternal death and offspring fitness in in multiple wild primates. You say primate offspring often depend on their mother is well beyond the age of weaning and offspring that experience maternal death in early life can suffer substantial reductions in fitness across a lifespan. Um, so so th this is related to what we were talking about before, but this is sort of a, a specific event right, that you can look at and how, how that affects. So, so what's the data you're using here? So this is the result of a wonderful collaboration between seven different long-term studies of primates. Um, one study is on murakis in Brazil. They're uh, a fascinating new world primate, very complex society, quite egalitarian, uh, not only between the sexes, but within each sex. There's not a lot of um, evidence for strong social gradients, social status, that kind of thing. Um, so murakis, the, the mountain gorillas made famous by the Diane Fossey studies, the chimpanzees made famous by Jane Goodall, the Amboseli baboons, uh, uh, two studies of capuchin monkeys in Costa Rica, um, and a study of shifaka, which is a, a lemur-like animal in Madagascar, and then blue monkeys in the rainforests of Western Kenya. And um, we've been collaborating as a group. These these seven different primate studies have been collaborating since about 2005. That work was um, actually initiated. It was sort of the brainchild of Karen Stryer at the University of Wisconsin, who leads the Murakey Project. And um, and we we decided that our data would that our data and the world would benefit if we carefully designed a database that sort of standardized um, uh, information, life history information about these individuals and, and recorded in a similar way for all these studies, uh, information about births, deaths, uh, and, um, and various other life events. And so that data set is now available for study. And again, my student Matthew Zippel at, decided after we found this effect of maternal uh, death on, on, of maternal early adversity on baboon infant survival, we decided to ask it more broadly. Um, and, and it was a really interesting study because it revealed both the, uni the universals among primates in terms of the vulnerability of infants who lose their mothers and 
some uh, some unique patterns where infants are less vulnerable. For instance, in the gorillas and the capuchins, in gorillas, if you lose your mother under the age of two, you, you really your survival is very compromised. But if you lose your mother after the age of two years, which is common in gorillas because female gorillas disperse, they'll move between social groups, sometimes leaving young offspring behind. Um, but what those offspring do is they diversify their social network and they form strong bonds with um, with males and with other group members. This isn't my work. This is the work of um, Tara Stowinski and her student Robin Morris um, Morrison. And um, and so gorillas somehow escape this negative consequence of maternal loss as long as they're weaned. Uh, capuchins are another one who seem not to be too negatively affected by maternal loss. Again, possibly because capuchins do a lot of what we call allomothering, where other individuals in the group will care for offspring. So, but other than that, it, there is this, there does seem to be this quite pervasive effect. Um, even if you're weaned, losing your mother is not good if you're a primate. And that's almost certainly the case because primates are very socially complex. And once you're nutritionally independent, you still have a lot to learn. And your mother is probably one of your main sources of information. So, so. How do you define offspring fitness here? What what is what is sort of the the con, the construct? Yeah, in this case, so so fitness from an evolutionary perspective is really just a function of how long you live and how many offspring you have. Um, th there's different ways to measure it, and population geneticists measure it one way, behavioral ecologists measure it another way, but but ultimately it's really a question of how effectively you're getting your genes into the next generation. Um, we only looked at offspring survival. That's a very simple component of fitness, because if you don't survive to reproductive age, your fitness is zero. So that's how we that's how we that's what we meant by offspring fitness. Um, it's did you survive or not? And, and it's an and it's an evolutionary fitness, not a health oriented kind of fitness. But presumably uh, in the data you can find other factors that potentially sort of expands the, the fitness definition. Yeah, so um, one of the things that we're curious about but haven't done an analysis of yet is the extent to which a mother's early adversity affects other aspects of her offspring's life. Uh, and we don't know that yet. Um, the what we do know, interestingly, my colleague Fernando Campos again has been looking at the extent to which, as females age, their offspring are better or worse off by having older mothers. Um, and we've looked at um, offspring survival and found what we just talked about uh, that, well, I guess we didn't discuss that as females age. In many, but not all, primate species, offspring survival is compromised for older mothers. Um, and also, we looked at the age at which a, a daughter first reaches reproductive maturity. And in a couple of species, it looks like that's also affected by maternal age. Um, but, the, but the whole question of these intergenerational effects on offspring fitness is still in the very early stages of investigation. Yeah, I don't 
don't know if it's in this paper or the previous one, Susan. I remember you saying um, if the mother is sick, she's not, she hasn't died yet, yeah. but she is sick. That that in itself has a pronounced effect, right? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, that appeared in both of those papers. And that was another uh, pretty consistent effect across all seven primate species. Um, not all of them, I think five of the seven, if I recall correctly. Um, and, and we didn't measure maternal sickness, but what we asked was, did the, measure, did, did the mother die in the subsequent two-year period? And, and if she did, the offspring was more likely to die even before their mother died. Um, suggesting that maternal body condition, even before observers can detect that there's anything wrong with the female, that maternal body condition is starting to decline seriously enough that offspring survival is compromised. Now, what's really interesting about that in the baboons, and we don't know this yet for the other species, is that we don't see much effect of maternal age on simple birth rate, right? Just how frequently you conceive. But we do see this very strong effect of maternal age on offspring survival. Um, it really seems clear that uh, from the perspective, I'm going to assert, I think this is true, from the perspective of a primate female, this is not true for all mammals or all organisms, but I think it's true for primates, that getting pregnant and having the baby is the easy part. <laughs> the hard part for a primate is getting that kid through to weaning, through to adulthood, really. And I think it's because primates are so socially complex and have so much growth and development they have to do, and that's a, that's a demand on the mother. Um, and, and I think that explains why in baboons, we don't see much, we see some, but not a huge effect of maternal age on just plain old birth rate. What we see a stronger effect of is maternal age on offspring survival. Yeah, I was thinking, Susan, on the human side, um, the, the culture, societal structure, all of that could matter, right? So potentially we may find huge variations across cultures, uh, how close they are, um, the, the presence of the mother, may be extremely important in certain cultures, maybe less so, just like you found other uh, primates. Uh, I wonder if you will find variations among human human cultures. There's, there's absolutely no question. And one of the things that evolutionary biologists are increasingly realizing and have a consensus about with respect to humans is that um, humans evolved as, um, as sort of communal breeders. We, we raise our offspring communally to an extent that is very uncommon or, or absent in other primates. Um, and one of the ways you can see this, or, or one of the pieces of evidence that supports this, is that human interbirth intervals in uncontracepted natural populations are really quite short for our body size. Most mammals, if you know the body size, you can sort of predict what the fertility rate is going to be, what the interbirth interval is going to be, because there's very strong correlations among um, body size, longevity, and, and birth rate, and, and various other what we call life history traits. Um, in humans, we have a very high birth rate for our body size. We, mm. we uh, just pack them in very tightly 
And it's almost certainly the case that we can do that because the whole community, the village, raises the child, right? And the calories that a child consumes as it develops, and it's, it's humans tend to be net consumers of calories, according to studies of hunter-gatherers, uh, until well into their late teens or even early 20s, they don't become net producers until they're nearly adult or, or well into adulthood. Um, once they become net producers, then they produce a lot of calories, and that's how we can then support these young uh, developing organisms who are net consumers for more than a decade, more than 15 years, they're net consumers. And that that is uh, almost certainly it, it that that strategy demands a social approach to raising offspring, um, and and so it, and it's also the case to get back to your question that different societies approach that problem differently. Some are much more well, you know, the kid is yours, and if you die, we'll make some effort toward it, but we're not going to you know, invest hugely. Other societies are much more, well, there's adoption and there's, you know, so, and there's also variation among individuals, right? So there's societal variation and there's individual variation. So I think your instinct is right that there's going to be a lot of variation uh, in human cultures and the extent to which um, offspring are compromised if their mother dies. Now, there's actually quite a lot of literature in that in humans and we we know that to be true and we know that in general uh losing your mother is not a good thing for humans but yeah yeah i know that this is not your research susan but i was wondering uh, humans used to have high reproductive rates not anymore it has been declining quite dramatically um replacement rate is you know 2.1 it is expected that we will hit 1.75 in like 30 years or something like that. Human population is now expected to peak around 2060 and decline rapidly. So clearly the reproductive rate has been going down and continue to go down quite dramatically. Um, there could be genetic issues, there could be environmental issues, but I also wonder if there are societal issues. If, if, if humans really had a society around them <laughs> before, and now they're sitting in front of the Facebook and that's not quite a society, um, perhaps, Maybe maybe we have changed. We are not the original humans anymore. We are some sort of electronic combination of human and machine. Well, I, so this is not my field. And so the opinion <laughs> I'm about to give you is not a scientific opinion. It's an, I mean, it's not uninformed by my background, but it's but it's it's a personal opinion. The, the data are pretty clear that when you give women birth control and you give them the ability to decide whether or not they're going to have offspring, the utility of having offspring is outweighed, of, of having many offspring is outweighed by the utility of having few. That's not universally the case across human societies yet, but increasingly as societies become more wealthy, women make that choice. And, and so I don't think it's uh, it's necessary. I think it's because raising kids is really, really hard and energetically They're demanding. Expensive. They're expensive. They're expensive, and and you know the the calories required, and, and you know money is just another sort of a currency that you can translate into calories, right? Uh, the calories required to produce a human 
and get them to adulthood now and, and launch them successfully, it's an enormous investment. And, um, and, I, and I think people just simply often choose not to make that investment the more uh, sort of agency they have around it. Yeah. So in conclusion, Susan, you're doing a lot of research in this area. So going back to non-human primates uh, that you focus on, if you look forward next few years, what are the areas that you really want to go deep, deeper into? What are the questions that that you're really trying to explore looking forward? Yeah, yeah. so um, I'm part of a, of a research project that um, has many different arms, several different arms, and I have two particularly strong colleagues who are leading really fascinating research. Beth Archie at University of Notre Dame is doing a lot of really novel work on the microbiome and also on ways to monitor health in our population and trying to understand health metrics because that's hard to do when you're just watching the animal observationally. But Beth is coming up with some clever ways. And then Jenny Tung, who is looking at uh, genetics and epigenetics and Try and, and in the aggregate, we're all trying to understand how the environment gets under the skin to affect behavior and fitness outcomes, but also to try to understand how behavior evolves as a, as a mechanism, as a, as a way that animals, as a tool animals can use to manage their environment. So we're all interested in the evolution of behavior. Um, I think one of the things that I'm just really curious about is um, understanding two, two things. One is understanding how the valence of social relationships matters. Not all, so, you know, we said social bonds uh, affect survival, but not all social bonds are created equal, right? We know this in human societies, that you might live with your parents as an adult, and sometimes those relationships are fantastic, and sometimes it's very <laughs> stressful. And and we don't have very fine-grained data at the moment on the valence of relationships for the wild baboons, and I'd love to get that. And then another thing I'm just so curious about is understanding more about the maternal environment and how it affects her daughters and the maternal environment they create for their offspring. Those are the, those are the things that I'm, I'm really uh, dying to understand more about. Yes, fascinating research. You know, like I like I said, it feels like this is the this is the right laboratory, mm. um, in an ironic way, for us to understand ourselves because there's too much noise <laughs> on the human yeah. side. Yeah. It's a simplified model of human societies. It's not a perfect model, but there's a lot of parallels that I think we can leverage to learn a lot about ourselves. Right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Susan. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye.